Hi, this is Dr. Randy Bach, and I uh, am honored uh, today for our coronavirus conversation to have um, one of the leading lights of the, uh, say, reality movement uh, around uh, COVID, freedom, uh, your rights, uh, responsibilities, and how um, things are kind of panning out across the world um, with lockdowns and our um, kind of dissatisfaction with some of the dictates uh, from government and so forth. Um, this is uh, Jeffrey Tucker. He is the um, president of the Brownstone Institute, and I have been very much edified and educated by uh, hanging around their page. Uh, I've been honored to have uh, some members and writers from their group uh, on our talk before, um, um, but never as of yet the, the, the leader. Um, Mr. Tucker is, uh, a, a, I guess, kind of a true intellectual. You know, he pursues ideas and he's uh, fearless. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to, you know, ask maybe if you want to introduce yourself a little bit. Sure. Uh, yeah, I founded Brownstone Institute in uh, 21 because then because I knew that the COVID lockdowns would, you know, opened up a new chapter in the history of humanity. I, I knew for sure we were facing a massive economic crisis. It wasn't there yet, but I knew it was coming. I knew that that would turn into a massive political crisis. It wasn't there yet, but I knew it was coming. And it would ultimately would uh, end up in a huge philosophical uh, debate and crisis over what kind of society we wanted and what kind of people we wanted to be and what is the relationship between individuals in the community, the community and the government, or the government and infectious disease and all the questions that have been most important for uh, human society for hundreds of years are all opened up freshly and new again. And I wanted to, to play a part in that debate. How did you have a sense uh, early on? What was your uh, handwriting on the wall? Well, because the the t tactics were so radical, so extreme, and so uh, deeply, I would say, like ignorant and, and radical. You know, the idea you're gonna, that we actually imagined you could shut off an economy and then turn it back on again is one of the most preposterous um, misunderstandings of, of the nature of human society I can ever imagine. And, and the fact that we believe that, you know, just reveals that we faced a massive intellectual crisis and then, uh, and just the extent to which people had had uh, completely uh, ignored certain uh, truths of virology that we had uh, struggled for hundreds of years to learn, and then just threw them all out the window just so immediately. It's very alarming because it suggests it suggests that humanity needed to relearn a lot of things. Um, so, I had previously to that been a bit of an optimistic uh, technophile, you know, uh, kind of a Victorian style wig, you know, imagining a future of peace and prosperity. What I had not understood, and this is one of the reasons I found found Brownstone, was just how deep the decay had, had, had become and how rotted the foundation of civilization had become. It's to the point that it could just all disappear and the course of what really amounts to just a few days. Uh, and given that, I figured we were going to face some sort of enormous reset along the lines of uh, World War One, uh, or something, yeah. something yeah. just equally momentous. It's, it's, it's definitely it's definitely shown some of the fault lines. Um, I, I mean, I try to I try to be an optimist. I, 
I'm not sure I've self-categorized my political um, ideology as clearly as you have, but um, I, I see, you know, I try to look at the, the, the positive thing. Um, you know, always look at the bright side of life as uh, life of Brian Monty Python, <laughs> as he's about to be executed, of course. Um, but, you know, I, I, one of the, the pluses perhaps is, and I'm not sure it's going to be ultimately one, is uh, COVID-19, the reaction has been, in a sense, a canary in the coal mine. And it showed, I think, real weaknesses in the parliamentary system. I mean, the, the, our allies, you know, our post-World War II allies, Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, you know, had, you know, a parliamentary democracy. And we kind of think they have the same rights we do. But, you know, parliament is, in a sense, can be the tyranny of the majority. Uh, the places that, that essentially did the best and have served as kind of the crucibles for uh, positive thought, which, again, it gets covered on brownstone.org, uh, most recently by uh, Thorstein Siglarsson, is comparing states. So we have the benefit in the United States of America of having been individual states that amalgamated or federated, mm -hmm. um, but still retain certain rights to manage themselves. So, yeah. you know, even even the, the stark one of North Dakota versus South Dakota, um, you know, there were big differences. I mean, and not amongst the population, but a way that the experiment happened. And, yeah. and we were able to see, you know, state by state, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, New York State versus Florida, uh, California, you know, versus Texas and so forth, these responses. And and a lot of places, though, followed kind of the marching orders, uh, in a sense from above, somewhat in, you know, I don't want to be conspiratorial, but, you know, they kind of followed the WHO kind of, and put a fill in the blank global, you know, organization handbook about how to handle this. Oh, you have to lock down, you have to do this, and so forth. I, I don't know if you, you know, can speak to that a little bit. Um, it's unclear the, the the ultimate source of of the problem, which is why I sometimes just say it's it's, it's due to an intellectual failing. But uh, there's no question that the CCP exercised an outsized influence over lockdown policy uh, the world over, and 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 over the World Health Organization in particular. So there is this very strange moment in the middle of February, where there was a junket uh, put together by the World Health Organization and the National Institutes of Health. And it's 2020. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's the only year I ever think about. <laughs> and and the Wellcome Trust in, in Great Britain, and they took a trip, you know, even though travel was banned to and from China, they, they took a private uh, chartered uh, airplane to Wuhan and went on a kind of a Potemkin village tour to discover all the beautiful ways in which the CCP managed the virus and, and, and crushed it. And so Fauci sent his team there and the World Health Organization was there and so on. And, and they, they hopped around to five different cities and the CCP said, see, look, no virus, you know, it was tough, it was hard. We had to um, uh, lock people in their homes and, and it was pretty brutal. But on the other hand, it's it's gone now, and now life is uh, back to normal. So they got back on the plane, and uh, on February 24th, by the 26th of February, uh, the World Health Organization had come out with a big report that was distributed all over the world, saying that the way to handle the, the China was right, the way to handle the virus is by locking down, and so everybody should immediately do it. And it was that same day that Fauci. Uh, the, I guess Fauci on the 27th and 28th of February seemed to flip from uh, being skeptical about lockdowns to being all in. And of course, Deborah Burks was all in. And um, 
this was uh, meanwhile, you know, things were really flaring up in, in, in northern Italy where there were lockdowns taking place. So the U.S. was, was next in line. And then once the U.S. fell, uh, then everybody else around the world uh, fell. So I think I think had some had something to do with the perception. Of course, there are tons of fake videos that were coming out of, of China showing people dropping dead on the streets and you know uh, you know all this kind of stuff. And all all later you know, turned out to be uh, fake. Yeah, there, but there's that, a, there's a fair amount of pol political theater. I mean, I think yeah. there was a, a certain political tension, obviously, during the Trump administration, which had you know yeah. a quote, quote unquote trade war. Right. Uh, as a lever to change China policy. Right. And right. I, I don't know that this was a direct uh, counter response. Yeah, I've wondered about that, too. Um, that raises really interesting questions, too, because we know that a lot of people. And by the way, I, I, I disagreed with the Trump's uh, trade policy. I always thought that trade wars are never a good idea. They lead to bad outcomes. And so I didn't I didn't like what he was doing with China. My friends and I all disagree on this point. But I've wondered if there was a certain retaliatory motivation there, mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of people were very upset that Trump had upended 70 years of, of trade policy uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, in favor of his own new vision. It wasn't just China. It was all over the world. So that might have, so that, that might have provided a certain impetus on the part of... Yeah. of well, I'm going uh, to remain agnostic on the topic. I think that you know, the Cold War, if you go back, you know, a generation, you know, the Cold War, nobody liked the Cold War, but the Cold War is better than a hot war. And and the way we operate these days is, you know, through these um, kind of, you know, I guess economic bullying. I mean, we see it with, with you know, the Russia-Ukraine um, divide currently. So we are going to do, you know, this and that to Russia, and they are going to do this and that and so forth. And, and it, you know, it's better than nuclear warheads. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just going to leave that aside. But you know, I, I again, I don't tend to be a conspiracy guy, but I do think things happen and then people uh, kind of uh, amalgamate around them. Or, or, you know, there's a term of art called the conspiracy of interests and something happens and then people whose interests align with it. So I don't think necessarily it doesn't seem to me that it was a deliberate uh, leak from China. But once it's there, uh, people can act and do you know things in a certain way. And then conspiracies form around this a little bit like a snowstorm, you know. We know, nobody knows exactly when it's going to st start and over which city, and it could just be a certain you know kernel of salt or whatever that that, that crystallizes the, the snowstorm. Once it's there, you know people react and they're either in favor or opposed to the snowstorm, right. and they want you know if they want to skip school, they're in favor of more snow and and so forth. So in the same way, I think as this this you know kind of occurred, you know people clearly used it as a cudgel uh, to get you know certain things to occur, and I think you know the it became. A device for the, you know, unelection uh, of President Trump. I think that you know, it played out. I don't think it was a pre. I don't think it was a pre conspiracy. I don't think there are many pre conspiracies, but I I do think that people rally you know, around one thing or another. Yeah. Once once the lockdown started happening and the stock market collapsed and you know unemployment went through the roof and product and we in, you know entered into an immediate uh, Great Depression. And Congress started spending trillions of dollars. Well, Trump's enemies said, "Well, this is great. I bet let's let's keep this up between now and November." Which sounds, in a sense, sadistic. Yeah, it is. It but, is yeah. but also, I think what many people have underestimated is the just how 
how, how intensely Trump deranged syndrome affected a certain class. Well, I think it's I think it's partially that, and I think it's actually power uh, love syndrome that people love power, and power you know brings money, money brings power, and so forth. I think you know they they want to be at the you know at the spigot. They want to be you know regulating the flow. It goes to their friends, not your friends, and um, and I think this you know almost anything goes. Uh, to quote Cole Porter, um, and you know, so I think I think there's really, you know, what is it? What is it? P.T. Barnum uh, said, you know, nobody went broke underestimating the, what was it? Gullibility of the American public? I forget. Um, but you know, I think I think you would do, you know, be be cautious to underestimate the need for power. Not you, but one should be, and, and we've oh, seen no, that. I mean, uh, Deborah Burks in her book really lays it out. I mean, she she imagined herself to suddenly to be the dictatress of the country, and um, and 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 imagined herself battling this beast called COVID, and the way she was going to battle it is the way she believed she uh, should have battled AIDS, which was through in, you know extreme behavioral controls. Um, universal condoms and and uh, um, I was thinking of getting a total body. Yeah, well, that's, that's essentially for her what the masks were, right? It was it was just a sort of a face condom, and that's the way she looked at it. And so she was a big champion of masks, and and the evidence just doesn't matter. In her book, it's pretty interesting. She says in July um, first, or something like that, she traveled to Arizona to try to convince. The governor of the importance of um, mask mandates, and uh, she succeeded, and so Arizona masked up. And then she says in her book, by July fifteenth, the cases were 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 going down dramatically. So proof proof that masks work. Well, just before I got on this interview with with you, I looked up uh, cases in Arizona. I mean, they're they're like this many, and it just went up a little bit, went down a little bit. Meanwhile, we had two gigantic successive waves later this mm -hmm. one this big and then another one this big you know long after the mask mandates were universal so i, I mean this, this is prepos these are preposterous claims uh, so but it's incredible what do they call it confirmation bias i mean in the, it's throughout the whole book you know whatever she did you know ended up achieving great results and whatever wherever she well, did she's a great she's a great person i actually i called her uh based on our scarf and that she saw her kind of self as an ace pilot. I called her Scarf Ace. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's it's a it's a remarkable book, but just the the level of arrogance and the belief yeah. that she and she alone is uh, going to battle uh, a, a, a respiratory virus that that yeah. had to become endemic. That ninety percent of the population was going to get at least, and probably get two three times. But and uh, for the, in, across the entire planet Earth because of its because of its prevalence, and that she and she alone is going to contain it is no, they're they're huge kind of e era. ego ego fantasies. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I had this. I'm kind of bringing a total non sequitur, but I was thinking of it earlier from, from something you said. When I was a kid, I had this dream. Um, there was a huge block of ice. It was a sweltering day. Right now, it's you know 90 degrees, and I had kind of one of those lion tamer whips, and my job was to have the ice not melt. And so I was I was circling this cube of ice on a table and kind of in a cage. And I kept whipping the ice. Every time I saw a little bit of ice melt, I'd go around the other side. And I was I was convincing the ice not to melt. 
and it was exhausting. I remember just like, I can't keep up with this. It's so hot and I'm getting hot and so forth. It was just a, I mean, it's, the dream has stayed with me a, a zillion years. Um, that's, so, that's so interesting. That is a great, that's a great metaphor for what, what she was attempting to do. And of course, <laughs> in service of this goal, she was willing to, you know, lie, cheat, and steal. I mean, she tricked Trump into the first uh, two-week lockdown, and she said that she knew. She says this in her book. She knew that it was going to have to be extended uh, because two weeks was nothing. So it's it was a, it's never, a foot, foot in the door. Yeah, it's just a foot in the door. So it was never going to be two weeks, and she knew that from the outset. And then she went in, asked for another thirty days, um, which Trump gave her. But I think now what's the exact date? She, at some point, he began to get to get suspicious of her. I mean, I'm I'm going to say it was middle of April, mm -hmm. and uh, stopped talking to her and stopped inviting her to meetings and that sort of thing. Um, so he was already kind of on to her, but Trump's great mistake was not disabling their power. Yeah. So. So what ended up in effect happening was we had this unified front from middle of March that led to, to, to these terrible egregious lockdowns. But by, uh, by a month later, and certainly about six weeks later, you really had two separate executive governments. I mean, one that was elected by the people, you know, Trump and, and the White House and, and, um, and, and, and more and more rationality was starting to dominate uh, that place. And they were regretting all the lockdowns and that sort of thing, and then you had the 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 deep the deep state executive agencies uh, controlled by you know um, Fauci and Farrar and Redfield um, were running their own little lockdown programs, and that 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 situation persisted uh, between April and November where they were going on, you know, local media and doing all this stuff. And, um, they were, you know, at pursuing one policy. Meanwhile, the, the, the Trump administration itself was pursuing a different policy. So how did they get away with that? And as best I can tell, uh, the guy on the inside of the Trump administration that was most friendly to, to Burks and Fauci and that gang was, of course, of all people, Mike Pence. He was, he was the guy. He well, that's kind of sad. I uh -huh. was unaware of that. Yeah, it was Mike Pence and a few others within the Trump administration that, that uh, I would say just basically betrayed Trump. Now, I'm not a Trump apologist because he never should have gone along with this. And you have to wonder what, what's wrong with the person's ego. They can imagine that they could just green light uh, a shutdown of the whole U.S. economy. Yeah, no, I think, he was, I think he, they scared him. I mean, yeah. I, I, I get it. You know, he's on the, the other side of 70, I think, at the time. And, you know, I think that maybe there's a little personal thing. And he did, I think he suffered when he got COVID-19. Uh, just as a, a footnote, um, you know, I to, to my listeners, I have my little repetitive trope, which is that COVID-19 doesn't exist anymore. It's not around. People keep talking about it, they keep calling, mm. get, getting COVID-19 booster. And I, I would like to make a framework, and maybe this is an article proposal for you, but I'd like to make a framework to get this new terminology, COVID-20, COVID-21, yeah. and COVID-22 mm -hmm. uh, to be talked about. And you so, know, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, that's, that's I've never really thought of that, uh, that before, which explains why uh, the immunity is of 
of not perfect uh, right. once it, once it's acquired from recovery. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's it's kind of I I I I would as a physician I I've given out I don't know some tens of thousands of vaccines over the years. And I can't give you a number, and I've taken dozens. Every year I got the flu shot and so forth because I saw it as a very reasonable precaution because I was going to be seeing lots of people with influenza. Uh-huh. And, and that was when I was young, too. I mean, it's just right along the way. So I'm, I'm very pro-vaccine, but prior, you know, before an infection, um, not after, A. And B, had I trotted out, if I, if I had gone, you know, there were a couple of years here and there where there were shortages of, of vaccines. That's a whole separate topic, topic of why there are shortages, you know, governmental interactions, whatever. But there were times there were shortages. But if I had gone in and trotted out a three-year-old vaccine and say, look, you know, we ran out of, you know, influenza 2011, but I've got some 2008 stuff in the closet over there, and I'm going to give that to you instead. I mean, I would be, whatever the verb from, I would be malpracted upon. I'd be, I'd be sued um, and probably, you know, carted away and so forth for, for um, you know, a danger to the person, especially if they had any side effects from it, because they say, well, that, that, that influenza is long gone. I say, well, you know, they're all influenzas. I mean, you know, anyway, I would be a, a very feeble uh, defense on my part, and I would, I assume, suffer uh, for making a mistake. But yet, you know, we, we're calling these things boosters when, when far, far from it. I mean, they're not boosters for anything ever any, anymore. And, and vaccines work prior. They don't really work that well after the fact. When we, when we give a tetanus booster, this is in the situation where people have continued not to have tetanus. You know, we would never give a, a tetanus a booster after the person's had tetanus, you know, and so forth. It's just kind of, you know, everything's kind of been, you know, terminology, um, terminologically uh, turned on, on its head, including, you know, the Wikipedia pages for the definitions of herd immunity, which have become, you know, vaccine-based uh, rather than actual, you know, native, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, outdoor general exposure. Oh, you know, which reminds me, I've got this book is so bad. Uh, this Deborah Burke's book, but she, in her section on herd immunity, she said it, uh, it only pertains to livestock. Um, <laughs> we sh- <laughs> well, I think that's kind of how she views a fair amount of the population. Yeah. It's very strange though, because we use the term herd immunity because, you know, on one hand, yes, it does apply to livestock, but it applies to, um, I guess, all living mammals in a way. I mean, and the idea is yeah. it's a mathematical idea that you know, within a certain, within a certain variant, a certain strain of a certain, whatever it happens to be, especially with respiratory viruses, that a, a certain number of people get it. And therefore, you know, the virus can't find a new host and right. leaves whatever it is, 10%, up to 30% or 40% of the population alone. Uh, but it's just a pure, it's just pure, it has to do with the mathematics of yeah. viral spread. And, and to deny it is tantamount to denying gravity. This is not. Yeah, no, it's craziness. It's I mean, not. I, I, they, they've, they've, they've made a lot of you know these kind of political judgments, which I mean, politics has clearly suffused and infused itself within medicine as we see now. Like certain ethnic groups are supposed to get the vaccine before other uh, or color, you know, race groups, whatever, you know, New York City. Um, but uh, you know, they they had kind of poor grounding. Uh, it, I think it was in Indonesia. Uh, they went ahead and decided that the, I think they did a reasonable game theory approach. They decided that the more mobile fraction of the population, say 
kind of your your FedEx delivery coterie, postal service, you know, the people who are you know kind of in communication with other people on a higher rate, they were going to get the vaccine first. You know, most places decided the elderly are going to get the vaccine first, which is fine. But if you play you know a kind of a game theory approach, so they're at the distant nodes, and the center. Of, you know, if you're playing, I don't know that kind of. Um, Chinese checkers. I mean, it's the center of the board where the action happens. And if you can, you know, have that bunch that are in conduit and communication with people, you know, vaccinated first, you presumably you'd build up your your buffer um, as a preventive. You know, I, I, I know Martin Kuldorf and uh, Jay Bhattacharya are on part of you know Britain for Brownstone, and they have this concept of focus protection, which I think deals with this in part. You know, of protecting and kind of siloing or isolating the elderly. But there was always this, this mistake as if everybody was the same. You know, that they, 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 the kind of the case fatality rates order differ from orders of magnitude. I think it's probably 10 or 100,000 times, you know, lower fatality rate if you're a 10-year-old, healthy 10-year-old versus uh, a nursing home 84-year-old. And, and, and people are just treated in this kind of this, you know, what I call it a Soviet kind of way, kind of a, a block binary way. Yeah. It, was, it was outrageous right from the get-go. Yeah, that's right. And and still to this day, people are not aware of the huge disparity of, of risk uh, based on, on age demographics, uh, just completely confused about it. And and every day Fauci's out there sowing more confusion, you know, it's and but that was a very important and even deliberate confusion because we're going to lock down a whole population then. Um, and actually, Burks talks about this, you know, that she didn't believe folks protection was possible. So therefore, you have to lock down. 100% of everybody, yeah. uh, even though the highest risk groups are are the, are are those people who uh, who, who you know of 80, 80 and above yeah. uh, comorbidities, and she knew this. Um, well, there's another interesting moment in the book. She says we could never have done what Sweden did. I think Fauci has said the same thing. We'd never have done what Sweden did, and just just to use you know sort of traditional public health uh, methods for uh, 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 controlling for managing a pathogen because that's a much healthier population. Okay, that's a, that's a very strange thing to say because what you're saying is uh, because we're all fat and unhealthy, uh, we, we, have to be, we have to be locked down. We have to be- we have pre pre Present company excluded. Yeah, that's right. But we have to be, you know, in general, the whole population has to be locked down because we're not healthy enough to deserve freedom. I mean, it's a very strange decision. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I think she would she would have found common cause in Australia, which I guess began as a penal colony, and and nobody knew it was going to wind up as one. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's easy to laugh. I mean, I don't know where they are now. I, I was reading, I haven't read in depth, but I was reading that New Zealand wants to kind of jump back in that uh, in that game to follow the the, the beacon of, of of Shanghai, China, and lock everybody down because Omicron, you know, vicious vicious horrible Omicron, is around. Well, you know, what's funny about that is the zero COVID people, you know, you don't hear much from them anymore, but all the policies in a lot of these countries, including to some extent of the US um, and Britain, but certainly in Australia and New Zealand, were uh, aspiring to destroy COVID through through lockdowns. And they figured that once they did that, that uh, the virus would, would be gone forever. Um, I don't know where the virus goes. They never explained that. Well, I so I... I, I, this is another one of my familiar tropes for people who watch this regularly, but I'm gonna. But it's, it's new to you, so um, you know. I, I, what I compare it to is is um, a wolf, 
um, versus uh, I don't know what kind of dog you may or not may not have. I have a chug, a Chihuahua pug. Um, so a, a wolf has an animal reservoir. That is to say, he has a, a a place he can go off on his own. He's not reliant on humans for his meals on a regular basis. Coyotes, foxes, etc. They're eating whatever the squirrels and raccoons and whatever small birds, whatever they can get their hands on. They don't need humans. They don't have to be nice to us. So when we intersect, and this is for any kind of jungle, forest animal uh, who could be vicious, when we intersect with one, but I, I like wolves because we have dogs. So when we intersect with them originally, we are at risk for them because they have no investment in our health and we have mm. no investment in theirs. So they, they bite us, eat us, and run away, and they can run back into the woods. So they have their, their, their zoonotic host area, their, their refuge. Um, over time, you know, the wolves and us, let's say we reach some kind of concord, and the wolves gradually kind of are bred into, um, you know, I guess, you know, our schnauzers and whatnot, um, our Pomeranians and Bichon Fries and so forth. And so at this point, they can still bite you. A pit bull might be dangerous and, they, you know, you can get diseases. And, and every now and then, you know, somebody gets a hand ripped off uh, by looking at a dog the wrong way. But for the most part, the dogs don't kill us. And we don't kill the dogs because we've reached an accord. They they don't have an animal uh, refuge anymore, a forest refuge anymore, and so they're amongst and, and, and with us. So one out of five coronaviruses before our famous, you know, either SARS two thousand three or COVID nineteen, you know, where did they come from? They probably came from the same place, from some animal place. But over time, they self attenuated and acclimated to us, and vice versa. And it's not in their they don't have brains, but it's not in their interest to kill us because they can't spread as fast. Not like they have brains, but on a mathematical game theory basis, if they knock, you know, if they knock people down immediately, they don't, they're not unable to spread. And the other example I used before is crowd surfing. Um, you know, that's when the, the singer like Ariana Grande, she might weigh 90 pounds, 80 pounds. She's up there and she jumps into the crowd. She's very light and she can be kind of crowd surfed all around and back onto the stage and keep singing. Meatloaf, uh, God rest his soul, uh, has a different effect. He jumps into the crowd. He creates a crater. And the crowd reacts to meatloaf jumping into the crowd by stepping away and making boundaries. So it's a different reaction. And that, that can be like the Ebola effect. That can be very much like a, you know, a bomb and very dangerous and lethal for that general area. But Ebola doesn't take over the world because we react to Ebola. And, and Ebola doesn't spread kind of innocuously through enough people to get enough reach. So if somebody wants to not have, and again, I'm imparting agency, but if something, somebody wants not to have a zoonotic refuge, so influenza comes in like a storm every year because they are in domestic pigs in China, and every year there's an incubation of a new strain. But if you don't have that refuge and you're just going to be with us, like the you know common cold, adenovirus, RSV, uh, rhinovirus, et cetera, then you can only go from person to person. You have to be crowd surfing, and you can't kill the crowd. Yeah. So I, I, sorry for that divergence, but you know the, the thing is, Everyone assumes still that's a wolf. It is not a wolf anymore. We, you know, we have a vaccine against that wolf, um, but that's COVID nineteen. You call the ancestral version, which sounds old in and of itself. Um, that before the the Greek letters uh, versions, and 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 for people to be kind of imputing or assuming that that's what's going on now in, in terms of zero COVID is idiotic because there will never be a world with zero COVID. There wasn't a world of zero COVID before, you know, two thousand three SARS. Because again, like 15 to 20 percent of every common cold is a coronavirus, and and this one will turn into something like that. It already has, in a sense, 
Um, and people have to, you know, basically chill. That's my that's my my medical advice. Well, my read on the situation from the very beginning. I, I I I I and if I could, if you know, as an economist, you know, I looked it up. What is the coronavirus? How do you control it? And I saw that you can't ultimately wipe it out with vaccines. That it just has to become endemic. If I could, if I knew that from January of 2020. There's, there's no way that people like Fauci and Burks and Redfield could not have discovered that. I don't know. I mean, I, I it's, it's hard for me to, to say the right answer. You know, my, um, my speci speciality, as they say in England, um, has been Zika, kind of a, a to total out of the blue. I'm not a Zika expert. I'm not a tropical disease. I've never been to Brazil, et cetera. But I became interested in Zika as a puzzle. Uh, a few years ago, when it first came out, I thought it was really weird that dengue, which is essentially a twin, it's kind of the so dengue is the human version of Zika, which is the primate version of the same virus, that dengue had been endemic, millions of cases forever, and never caused any microcephaly, and supposedly Zika did. Anyway, time, you know, fast forward, I had other things to do, and a few years later, I, I kind of revisited it. I thought, well, now was enough time to see, and, and Zika kind of had disappeared, but Fauci is in the middle of all that story, and there's kind of like the evidence is clear that it disappeared and, and maybe maybe somebody could at least question the original theory, which is my you know, basic premise. Um, and they don't, I, you know, I think there's kind of an industry that people neglect that yeah. there is, people have financial, getting back to economics, they have financial motivations, they have personal motivations. They're also part of kind of a tribe, a group of ideas. And throughout the Zika thing, it's been push, push, push. Even today, they are literally infecting American citizens with Zika in Baltimore uh, to get a Zika, the, the imaginary or elusive Zika vaccine when there's really no need for it here, obviously, and there's no need worldwide. But but there's money to be spent and there's an industry to be had, there's research and so forth. And and in this case, I'm not again, not a conspiracy guy, but there are patents, there is industry, and there's you know a huge pharma, you know, kind of sinecure we've made that creates a lot of excess income. And that some of that kind of gets filtered around to the people who help make the decisions. It's it it has become an industry. The uh, pandemic preparedness industry is actually very dangerous because uh, once you've you've got billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars at stake, you know, you have the incentive to turn every new pathogen out there into a global crisis. You know, the monkeypox hysteria of last month is a good example. <laughs> You know, yeah. and and the fact that and and the, the language gets very loose. I mean, the media wants to do this too because the media needs clicks and views, and they never prospered as much as they did during COVID. So, yeah. uh, so when, I'm I'm just hoping the monkeys out there don't read this stuff. Yeah, right. But when this new strain came along, you know, a CNN blew up and said this is the most virulent strain yet. Strain yet. Well, okay. So the word virulent is a, exactly right. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 like, wait, where did this word come from? So we're now we're talking about virulence. Okay, but there's two forms of virulence. There's right. uh, severity and prevalence. Those are really different. In fact, there's a trade-off between the two. So virulence. What they mean by virulence is transmissibility right. or prevalence. You know. You know, it's, it's funny because in the, in the common parlance, we say, oh, this video. It could be Cardi B or or whatever. It went viral. Everybody's watching this, or some kid who, you know, you know, the little kid. Like everybody saw that. That went viral. But as far as I know, it didn't kill anybody. Right. Um, and so this, you know, the mere aspect of virulence 
uh, and I hope this viral video goes viral, but uh, I, and I, I'm assuming it's not going to kill anybody, but, um, you know, it, it, it's going to get back to Monty Python. At one point, they had the, the greatest weapon, and this is the Great War, uh, the, the funniest joke ever told. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so he's got the funniest joke, and people can't read it, because if they read it, they die laughing. Right, <laughs> and so they keep this this the funniest joke under <laughs> under lock and key and so forth. And somebody, I guess, opens it by mistake. Anyway, yeah, hilarity ensues, and, but you know, to a, a bad purpose. Um, but anyway, so so, so for the for the funny thing is that you know we've kept or they have kept a lot of information under lock and key. Uh, I interviewed Jay Bhattacharya, uh, doctor, um, back in January, and you know, back, I guess reasonably prior. Uh, it, the uh, FOIA um, had come out showing that doctors, and I use the word loosely, doctors uh, Collins and Fauci had, you know, conspired uh, against uh, the declarance of the um, Great Barrington proposition of focus protection. The doctors, I, I, I see, PhD, Dr. Koldorf, uh, Sunitra Gupta, and and Jay Bhattacharya, and you know. You know, it's it's weird. I mean, they're assuming that you know knowledge outside of, of what they're putting out is is you know shouldn't be seen. Um, yeah, they they said uh, let's have a hard takedown of this uh, as soon as possible. But by that time, that was October. I mean, by that time, six months of lockdowns had gone by. Uh, the lockdowns were not working. They were destroying life on Earth, but they were, they were uh, uh, destroying uh, also uh, Trump's prospects for re-election. So they wanted to keep it up to November. So it's very important to them to suppress. Uh, yeah, the, the ends justify the means. Yeah, at that point, it became very important to suppress alternative uh, ways of thinking. I, mean, I had been writing against lockdowns since, really since January of, of 2020. And in April, I got a call from... Rajiv, God, I can't remember his last name, but he's a former Gates, uh, Gates uh, mm -hmm. a virus uh, guy. He had a, headed up viruses for the Gates Foundation and now ran his own. Rajiv Vankala, I guess his name was. Mm -hmm. And he was around in the Bush administration in 2005. So he, he believes that he's uh, the uh, originator of these kind of violent pandemic responses. It was originally his idea. And uh, he was very upset at me. This was in April, I guess, of 2020. Called, called me up, just wanted me to stop writing about it. Just like, stop opposing these lockdowns. It's really dangerous. And I was just just a guy writing stuff on the internet, you know? And, yeah. and he spent a yeah, better part of 30 minutes or a little bit more trying to talk me out of my views. And out of the blue? Just... Yeah. Yeah, uh, because they, they really wanted a united front. They didn't want anybody out there. So I was personally targeted pretty early on as a guy that they had to get rid of. Hmm. And of course, they talked all the social media companies into becoming their propaganda organs. So Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and everybody else just went right in line, started echoing CDC, WHO propaganda, and crushing all dissonant thought. And uh, they, they kept it up. And then even after the election, right? It got even worse. In oh, absolutely. Well, the election, you know, the, you know, uh, there's a meme that says they're, they're only after me to get to you. Do you remember that? Uh, it was a picture yeah. of Donald, Donald Trump. And, yeah. and so he took a lot of hits and he's sort of, uh, you know, Teflon-ish um, as far as it seemed, you know, whether they're going to bother him. 
but but clearly, you know, once the reins of power, uh, you know, came back into the right hands, um, you know, I think they have a, a nice little shiny tool uh, to use again and again potentially. And I don't I don't think this would have existed. I've tried to convince people in the synagogue um, of this and other places, you know, like the tennis club and whatever, and other groups and whatever. Oh, I'm an, it's an investment group. Um, and, and each one of them, you know, I become the outlier by essentially, you know, saying, you know, giving facts and the data. You know, I, I think the whole thing was an open and shut case early on, you know, when the, when the Diamond Princess uh, event happened. And, and if you wanted to replicate that experiment at any point during the, the difficult times of 2020, it would have cost you tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to get enough people on the boat to volunteer. But you know, there was this boat and it was January 2020 and, um, and you know, 3,700 people on board. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, but the case fatality rate was, was basically what ultimately was there. The, case, the, the incidence rate of even kids even knowing they had it was, was low. I mean, and the thing circulated, the air circulates in the boat. You have this perfect experiment. If you wanted to see what a virus would do. And, and the young people didn't even know they had it. Uh, none of them died. And none of the middle-aged people really got sick at all, uh, minimally, colds and whatnot. And at the end of the day, there were 10 fatalities out of 3,700 people, but the median age was 82. And even though that's kind of a small experiment, that that replicated through every population um, right. thereafter. But everybody knew this right to begin with. And, and you know, if you had a little perspicacity or, or digging capability, you know, you, you, you would have tried that out because it was in the news. That boat that was kept at sea off the coast yep. of Japan. Yep, the Diamond Princess told us uh, pretty much everything we needed to know. So, um, so one wonders, really. Uh, uh, and and these days you hear all the time. Well, it's the fog of war. We didn't know March, April. We didn't know. We knew. Yeah, we knew. Yeah. And Eden Eden Edies wrote his article in Stat News. Uh, I guess probably five days into the lockdowns. Maybe it was March twentieth, maybe twenty third, something like that. Mm -hmm. And said, well, this is a wild overreaction. And he gave all the data from the Diamond Princess in there. So it was it was well known. Uh, there's there's no excuse for what they did. None no. whatsoever. No. So um, I, I'd like to, to segue a little bit into into you, um, because I'm very impressed. You know, you, you get this call and whatnot. Uh, I assume uh, I'd like to kind of hear and follow the story of, of where you get your vision and how you manifest and keep your strength. Concerning infectious diseases, or just in general? Well, let's just kind of follow up on this. This did did you stop doing what you were doing when you, when asked, for instance? Oh, of course not. I mean, yeah, yeah no, it's unthinkable, right? I mean, all I've really ever cared about was examining and thinking about and writing about uh, the nobility of of human freedom and the threats to it i mean that's that's all there, there, therefore you must be crushed <laughs> right um i mean i fell in love with the idea of human liberty as an sort of an animating force in the world when i was about 20 years old i was in college and it was from my own reading and you know that's what caused me to give up my music career you know which i was very good and you know that sort of thing um but and 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 pursue economics full time uh, because I just fell in love with an idea. So 
Um, and I and I try to pursue it honestly, right? I mean, like, you know, I'm not I'm not some sort of dogmatist. You know, I'm, you know I, I I I became convinced of the the practical utility and and moral imperatives of the idea of human freedom and human rights pretty early on, and and I've been willing to subject that to every test ever, and I. I've spent a whole career, you know, just looking for uh, a good case against those ideals, and I've never been able to find them. And that's that's one of the things that drew me to infectious diseases is that as early as 2005 and 2006, with the avian bird flu under the George W. Bush administration, uh, the existence of infectious diseases being cited as a reason to to violate people's liberties and to grow government power immensely. So I knew this threat was out there. I was writing about the topic back then. And and actually my 2005 article on this topic actually holds up pretty well. So, uh, and and over the, the subsequent 15 years, I'd written two or three articles against the quarantine power. I, so I was just very interested. I'm also fascinated, uh, for years I've been fascinated by the by the reasons that people give for why we can't have freedom. And if you talk to people long enough, they'll, they'll mention, oh, because of roads, oh, because of healthcare, or whatever. But inevitably, at some point, somebody's going to bring up uh, pandemics. You can't have freedom in a pandemic. So I'm, I've always been curious about that. Is that true? Is that really true? You know? Well, you know, I, I, I can't answer that. I'm not a historian, but <laughs> I'm not a biologist. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, it's, it's for me, it's a matter of degree. You know, should, um, you know, people people have knives in their kitchens um, and nobody's really talking about knife control and people right. are able to, you know, kind of manage knives. And uh, in the United States, the NRA, I don't think there's ever, I don't know, within recent memory, been a murder by an NRA, NRA member. Um, so people are able to deal with, responsibility and risk and so forth. you don't have to if you don't want to you can have a knife free house should you care to it makes it probably you know your your dining choice is somewhat limited but you could just call in chipotle um as you will but um you know that the 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 freedom part you know i think it threatens people who have less imagination um you know the postal service in my view is vestigial and probably has been for a good length of time. I think the fire departments uh, are not completely vestigial, but they don't need to be around to the same extent they have. But they, they get a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not a momentum, but a, a, a you know kind of a critical, a, a certain mass, and they, they are unavoidable. They create their own uh, gravity, in a sense. They become large enough. I think just a, that's a t- tiny sideline, but in terms of fires, I think from if you go from 1970 to the present, so 50 years, uh, there are, I think, I don't know, twice as many people, just roughly say, uh, in the United States. And despite twice as many people in denser circumstances, there are, I think, again, I can't come up with a number, but let's say there are like three three or four times fewer fires. Hmm. Um, and firemen, per se, make more, even in real dollars, now than they did then. So there are more firemen per person making more per fireman in, in you know normalized dollars with fewer fires. And, and what happened to the fires? I mean, basically we have, you know, we have sensors, um, you know, we've got smoke detection, we have 
all the you know code, you know, better application, whatever. So we have all these fire prevention needs, but nobody's talking about getting rid of firemen. We're not getting, we could easily get rid of mailmen, so forth, but they create their own uh, guild, basically their own kind of political power nexus. And, and in a sense, you know, what, what will probably be one of the outcroppings of this adventure or misadventure is that pharmaceuticals got very, very wealthy and they have a, a, a nifty way of, you know, fear is a, is a, you know, one of the natural aspects of every animal. And, you know, fear of the unknown is, is probably the essence of it. Um, and people who have nifty little tools and toys like to use them. Yeah, no, I think that, that's that, that's right. And, and so it becomes very dangerous, especially in the case of infectious disease, because, you know, fires are localized, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and contained within by geography. That's not true with viruses. They affect the whole society. And so, you know, the World Health Organization likes to say this, for infectious disease, we need an all of society, all of government response. That's right. what they always say. Yeah. So it becomes potentially totalitarian. Absolutely. And 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 we saw how this is true over the last uh, two and a half years. Yeah. And the tendency is to exaggerate. I guess the point I, I started to think of making, but I didn't, was uh, uh, the example of, of George Washington and smallpox. Uh, you know, I guess he forced uh, the vaccination, such as it was back then, of you know, taking somebody's pox and sticking it somebody else. And it was a very rudimentary vaccination. But smallpox is a very, very, very deadly uh, virus. You know, so it comes down to a matter of degree. If it becomes a zombie apocalypse, uh, sure, we can we can think about this. And, right. you know, there are, there are gradations. But if it's the if it's a zombie, you know, corona, whatever, and, and you know, what is it, 99.7 something percent survival, and again, the ones who are dying are in a nursing home with a life expectancy of about 11 months anyway. Um, sure, that's sad, um, but you know, it's not something for which you should ruin the lives of, 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 of eight-year-olds. Well, and the other case of the George Washington example is fascinating. He just didn't want his troops suddenly to come, you know, for there to be a smallpox outbreak and for them to lose the war as a result. Mm -hmm. um, but he himself had had smallpox when he was young and knew for sure that he had lifetime immunities. All right, so they were sophisticated, it was the 18th century, they knew this. So his inoculation mandate did not pertain to himself. Yeah, well, this is a funny thing. Or anybody else who had already had smallpox. Yeah, so so go, going from George Washington to Washington Irving to Kyrie Irving, which is the segue I wanted to make, one of our great founding fathers, Kyrie Irving, you know, People kind of, uh, he's a polarizing figure, a basketball player, but I actually agree with him on this one point, which is, you know, he didn't want to get vaccinated. He says, look, I mean, he's got, I think, religious ideas about it and his own personal, uh, you know, oddities and whatnot. But but he says, I've had coronavirus. I had, he had the ancestral version originally, and he's, and he's fine. And so there's no reason to take an extra thing. So he's with, so, so to make that string, George Washington, Irving, Kyrie, uh, you know, he's actually along the lines of George Washington, understanding that he's going to have immunity to the severe version of COVID. And there is no point to it except dogma, uh, doctrinaire, um, you know, kind of dictates. That's right. And it's, it's not perfect immunity, but it's much stronger and broader than any vaccine ever could be for this kind of virus. You have cross immunities. And and Sinetra knew this very early on. I mean, she told me this uh, in 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 October 
of uh, 2020, she said, there's no way a vaccine can replicate the effectiveness of natural immunity. And that, that's yeah. just a known yeah, there's, fact. There's, there's, there's no way, again, one of my silly examples or analogies is like your your dog or my dog could pick me, if you dropped him into at a football stadium and there's I don't know, thousands of people, he would, for somebody he had enough time, he'd find me, okay? He has complete identification of who I am based on my movements, my voice. I could probably snap my fingers a certain way, and he would sift his way to find me. He has complete Randy Bach immunity uh, versus, you know, the dog in the movies, whatever they, you know, sniffs my undershirt or whatever, and then he tries to find me. There's going to be a lot more kind of hedging and false positives based on a scent. When we do the, the, the vaccines with this, you know, a spike protein, we're just maybe taking, you know, the, the virus's nose or what his eyes look like, and then trying to apply that, and you're gonna be able to be on the lookout. Having the, had the illness, you've, you've had the totality, just like my, like my dog has lived with me, you've lived with the virus when you have the actual virus, and you're gonna have a fuller, better, more complete immunity, and you know, essentially the, the, the true definition of herd immunity is when you have enough people with that. And that sure. was never supposed to be vaccine immunity. It's one of the great kind of subtle crimes that the definitions were Kind of percolated out from the CDC and whatnot to change the, the definitional term of herd immunity to be natural infection to vaccine application. Yep. Um, yeah, and and I, actually, I mean, there's a lot of terrible, terrible things that that, that Fauci and Burks did over the course of, of the last two years. But but the most outrageous was just this this repeated denial uh, that they knew anything about natural immunity that we couldn't trust it. And and Fauci was asked again and again about this. He said, you know, we're, I don't know, we're still looking into that. We just don't know anything. Well, he has a variable memory when it's, uh, you know, kind of, I think he's got certain kind of an onion layer and certain things that are central. He's not going to let you. Uh, well, it all makes me very sad, uh, Randall, because the public has been so profoundly misled. And, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot, I'm writing a lot, you are too, and we talk, and we put out this podcast, and I've, the Brownstone has a very high readership, but I spent the last several days, you know, not entirely with my own intention, but hopping around from airport to airport, and I would say there's at least 25% of, yeah. the, of the public is profoundly yeah. confused. I mean, there, and the, the masks that people are wearing now are not you know, the little surgical masks, you know, just to keep you from spitting into somebody's organ, you know, organs. They're the N95 stuff yeah. and uh, extreme stuff. And people wearing these gigantic dog beaks or duck Yeah, dogs. that's good. I mean, I, 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 I theoretically would wear them if you put, uh, like, um, Skittles and M&Ms inside. And I could... Uh... Yeah, right. But it, it's so interesting because I, I was sitting... I'm just puzzled. And I... You know, if I were a, a blunter person, I would just go tap these people on the shoulder and say, yeah, no, it's, yeah, well, I'm sort of on that verge of that. I mean, I don't go up to people randomly, but if I'm at the supermarket or whatever, uh, when I was at Staples not that long ago, and a young kid, he's, I'm judging from what I can see of his face, is about 23, 24 years old. Yeah. And, I, you know, if I if he's cl clerking me, um, I, I'll, I'll, you know, say, hey, so they make you wear that here? You know, I kind of have a little stock question to get people to talk about it and the same thing in the poster so I, I open these conversations when i'm encountering somebody vice versa um so i don't go up to people randomly but um you know i, I ask the socratic question i mean 
so are you, so if it's their own choice, I'm like, are you planning on wearing one in like 10 years from now? Oh no, absolutely not. Oh, five years from now? No. How about a year? You know, so like, well, what's going to be the decision point that's going to make you come to the realization you can, yeah. you can come out now. I mean, the Japanese soldier in the Philippines, he continued the war until what, 1963 or something like that. And if you know that story. Uh, there was a lady walking by wearing this huge duck bill on her face, and I was kind of laughing at her. Well, to my surprise, uh, she uh, turned and looked at the little bar where I was sitting and then sat in the chair, sat down in the chair right next to me. And I thought, well, you know, now I kind of felt bad because I was staring at her with a, a look of disapproval in a way. I think she didn't notice. So she sits down right next to me, pulls the thing off her head, sets it down, and turns to me very closely and says, hi, how are you today? Huh. Well. And I said, well, I'm fine. And she just went, went about her business. Like, so, so, so she's walking in the airport, you know, no, no closer than five, three to five feet from anybody. And she's all masked up. And then she sits down. And, and do people actually believe this? That they yeah. sit down at a bore? And and that the the sheer act of sitting and resting, no, it's uh, you protected uh, protected for the virus. So yeah. I, I just don't I don't understand it. I don't know if people have just decided to not think clearly or or what's going on here. Well, I, I think I think most everything comes down to group dynamics. I mean, you know, they're baseball fans, but they wouldn't consider themselves baseball fans. They're they're Red Sox fans. They're Yankee fans. They're Mets fans. And the Yankee fans don't like the Mets fans, vice versa, Red Sox. And, and they disdain each other, even though they all are practicing the same thing. They eat the same way. It's, there's a lot of team tribal identity. I think that's very deeply rooted. Yeah. Us. We, we need some banner. But I'm going to, before I, I finish my sentence, I want to just give a, a, a two-minute warning, get back to sports. Uh, we're going to have to stop uh, to stay under an hour. Okay. And so I, I'd like maybe, you know, if you have a, a finishing statement, I'm going to leave people with. Yeah, sure. Um, but I'm not sure what it would be, except that I would say that we still have a lot of research and uh, to look into, you know, what exactly happened here. I'm, I'm personally obsessed with the topic. I read, read every book that comes out on this and trying to piece together the story. I think we're eventually going to get it, but but uh, we're only 20, 30 percent away there. It's not there's a lot of moving parts here and i do think we need to devote some effort and time into figuring it out figure out what happened but then also rethinking what it is that went wrong with our social order and with with individuals that allowed us to permit this to happen and 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 think through what are the conditions under which we can prevent this from ever happening again i think this is an extremely urgent thing we have to do in our times as in right now and it's going to as far as i'm concerned it's going to probably consume the rest of my life on earth well fair enough i am very much appreciative of your life on earth and i wish you continued uh, good health and blessings and um and strength and power in what you're doing because i think it's very important so i'm going to commend everybody to go uh, look at uh, brownstone.org and um and i'll put up some links and i'm in your debt uh please let me know how i can return the favor someday and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for spending the time with me. All the best. All right. Have a good one.